For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Max. And before we get started this week, I want to tell you about a sponsor who makes our show possible. That sponsor is Audible. And Audible is the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word ephemera in the world. They have more than 180,000 titles for you to choose from, including many from guests on this show. Uh, ta Coates, Liz Gilbert, Michael Lewis, all kinds of people. Basically, anyone who has come on the show and talked about a book, that book is on Audible. People who have come on the show who don't have books, when they write books, those will be on Audible. Here's what you should do if you don't believe me. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. That's audiblepodcast.com slash longform. You can start a 30-day free trial. But before you do that, why don't you listen to the show? Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I am joined by Max Linsky to my right in the studio, Aaron Lambert to my left from Longform. Together we form a triangle. Like to give people a visual. I love when the uh, like the football announcers on the radio talk about like left to right on your radio dial. I always like that. Yeah, gives you a real picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Old timey radio. Those guys really know what they're doing. Uh, you talked to someone who knows what they're doing. I did. I talked to Robin Morantz Hennig. She is a writer. Uh, a lot of science. She's written a lot about science. She's written a lot, a lot of long form stories. She's written nine books. Uh, a lot for the Times Magazine and uh, Washington Post, New York Times. Uh, a really remarkable career that is ongoing. She has a recent piece in uh, National Geographic. I'm excited for this one. It's a long time coming. Yeah, we've been trying to schedule it for a while. Yeah, finally pulled it off. Good work, man. And there's a uh, there's an exciting twist <laughs> partway through. Thought we weren't going to talk about that. I think that it's good for people to know there's a big twist coming. It's a big twist. Aaron, if you had a big twist mm-hmm. and you wanted to... Uh, Give it to people. Tell them. Two-part two part email. <laughs> cliffhanger email. That's what I'm talking about. Say you want to do a cliffhanger email. Okay. Well, what you do is you put out the first email. <laughs> then you have an email collection form so people who are hooked can hook in. And then you send out the conclusion email, much like Evan did with his recent series, The Mastermind. Uh, and there's only one place that I think could pull that off, and that's MailChimp. Uh, their list is actually free. Until you reach a certain amount of uh, subscribers, so you put out that first uh, first part for mm. free. Then you put in the credit card there for uh, w- once you big do the big reveal. 
Did you guys use MailChimp for your mastermind emails? Of course. Of course. Every single one was sent out by MailChimp. Every single episode was was teased. Do you have any um, knowledge as to whether Paul LaRue ever used MailChimp? <laughs> I, that's coming in a, in a bonus episode. If you're running an international you know, cartel, <laughs> there's only one email news provider. <laughs> Here's Evan with Robin Morantz Henning. Robin, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Evan. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Robin Rance Hennig work over the last oh, you poor several guy. weeks. No. <laughs> um, and the one thing that struck me, first of all, is the range and amount of things that you've written about in your career. And I did a calculation that I just wanted to kick, kick things off with, which was that at minimum, I feel like your writing has reached 100 million people. Oh, my God. How did you figure that out? I mean, you can never know. It's like the circulation of a newspaper or the circulation of a magazine doesn't necessarily, you know, not all those people are going to read it every time. Right. But looking at the Times, the Post, all the magazine work, the books, I mean, you could probably add it up to like 200 million in circulation and you could say half of those people, it passed in front of them at some point. Maybe some percentage of those, like, read the whole thing. Well, maybe if you do it for long enough. I mean, this is over 35 years you're talking about. So, And you're throwing in things like Women's Day, right? I'm throwing it all in. I'm throwing <laughs> yeah, it all in. because those women's magazines, they reach a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people read them very religiously. They do. Also. Yes. A lot of it is science-related or science writing. And reading a lot of it, I was just reminded, like, I've done some science writing, uh, and I started out doing science writing, how hard that writing is. I actually think it's the hardest kind of journalism to me. Well, it's hard to do clearly. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're trying to be really true to the science itself, and yet you want to not turn off your general readership, that part is hard. Yeah, the yeah. balance of it is so difficult to strike, and you do it so well over such a range of topics. So that leads me to want to know did you want to be a scientist prior to wanting to be a journalist, or did you want to be a journalist first? I always wanted to be a journalist. I always knew that what I could do was write. How did you know that? I got really good grades on my papers, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I was you know, in the high school newspaper, and I really liked doing that. And I was also in high school in the science concentration, which is where the brighter kids went uh -huh. in my big city, Jamaica High School school in Queens. Uh -huh. um, and so I learned a lot about science, but I never really wanted to be a scientist. Uh, it occurred to me even then, and certainly by college, that I would combine the two. Oh, so by college, you thought that type of journalism would be for you? I kind of did. The problem is it didn't really exist. So I, I went to Cornell and majored in English, not in science at all, because mm -hmm. I took a, a class in genetics freshman year, and I only got a C plus. I realized <laughs> that everybody else was like pre-med and really worked hard at it. And uh, I just thought it was just another class. They had a different type of motivation they for that, did. that work. Yeah. And they also were all in fraternities and they were, you know, sharing each other's old final exams and stuff. And I didn't have any of that. Uh -huh. um, so I majored in English and then I went to graduate school in journalism. And I wanted to take some classes in science writing. And there was one class in the whole school. And it wasn't very good. It was, you know, we'd go out to... Um, Argonne National Laboratory, this was at Northwestern, uh -huh. and then write like a field report. You know, it was like no real science journalism. Were there um, books or anything that you sort of knew about or, or 
The book that really struck me was Vaginal Politics, which was a very feminist book from the 60s or 70s. And I thought it put together a whole lot of information about um, about gynecology and stuff and the way women are treated in medicine and then politicized it. Huh. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to sort of um, combine a political viewpoint with medicine and science and science policy and stuff like that. It was Medill J School. Right. So right. there's nothing that sort of not really pointed you to how to not do Not really. That. Although I did. I took a class in magazine writing and I wrote an article then. And this is when I was 21 years old. I wrote an article about death. Uh, so I was obviously thinking about this subject for a long, long you've time. Lately, been writing. <laughs> I've been a writing lot a about death. lot about death recently. We'll get to that yeah. uh, for National Geographic and for the Times Magazine. Right. So anyway, so I wrote this article about. It was actually about Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who was based then at the University of Chicago, was not a famous person, oh. um, and I just sort of heard about her and followed her around and followed her on her rounds at the hospital and talked to some dying people. This and is before she wrote the book, before it was the when like, she, stages? Yeah. She was just coming to write that book. Oh. Yeah. And she was lecturing about it, but she wasn't writing it. And she was sort of um, being very um, unusual in her insistence that you talk to dying people about the fact that they're dying. Hmm. That was like her big message then. Anyway, I wrote this article and that got published in Chicago Magazine. Uh, so that was how I did it. You know, I took a, the magazine writing class and sort of twisted it a little bit to be something I wanted to write about. And then how did you set about trying to make a career out of that? Uh, well, I was constrained somewhat. I was very young but already married, and my husband was still at Northwestern getting a Ph.D. So I had to stay in Chicago. There weren't that many options. I got a really terrible job at first working for sort of a crazy ophthalmologist who had a, a medical journal that he published in his back office. It was awful. It was really I, awful. He had a very busy practice. Well, he'd come in in the morning um, and he had all sorts of weird ideas about health. And so he'd come in in the morning and turn on the water for like an hour before anybody could make any coffee with it because he was cleaning it out. And uh. he was um, probably bipolar, and so sometimes he would scream at everybody, and sometimes he'd be really nice to everybody. Um, I was in a room that I shared with two other people, one of whom was a chain smoker. And we just produced this journal that was, we solicited articles from doctors, and then I had to write up a quiz at the back of the journal. Uh, I didn't know anything. For continuing medical education credits for these doctors who would read it, you know, they'd get the journal, there would be a, a test in the back. They would check off their answers and mail it in someplace and get some CME credits for it. Uh, and they used to complain that the tests were too hard. <laughs> I mean, every answer was in the publication because I had to make the questions. Um, anyway, that only lasted about a year. Were you trying to search out where you would go from there? Or did you feel like, I've yeah. got this journalism degree and now, I don't, now I'm stuck in this thing. I don't know what to do with it. No, I, I was very ambitious. And, and I worked for him for like four days a week, I guess. And I spent the other three days trying to freelance, mm -hmm. um, which didn't go anywhere really, except I got one assignment to review a book for three books for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. It was three books. It was Robert Butler's book called Why Survive, also about old people and dying and stuff. Luckily, I liked his the best, and he then went on to win the Pulitzer Prize that year, so I was vindicated. Uh -huh. And then two other books, one, I forgot their names, sadly, but um, one of them I really trashed. And 
the guy's cronies kind of went after me after that. They real they threatened to sue. They Ellery Queen, the mystery writer, was one of his good friends, and he wrote this nasty letter. And uh, and then they, I mean, it got very complicated. <laughs> Luckily, I moved on from that terrible job to a much better job called The New Physician, which was a publication for medical students and interns and residents. Uh-huh. So it was something where I could write articles, and the articles were about healthcare policy, stuff I really cared about, and medical education. And it was a young staff, and I made friends with, you know, I felt like I was on the Mary Tyler Moore show, kind of. So that was fun. Was there a moment that you identify as like a big break? There was totally a big break. When I, um, you know, I said I was always trying to freelance. So I was just always sending out pitches and uh, and always starting at The New Yorker and then down to The New York Times Magazine. And I mean, I I was really obnoxious about a lot of this. When I was in college, I wrote a letter to Pauline Kael and said, what do you think of this paper I wrote for my film class? <laughs> and <laughs> she's, uh, for, for the young people out in your listening audience, she was a very esteemed uh, film critic for The New Yorker. People should know who Pauline Kael is. They should, but, uh, you know, they probably don't anymore. They might not. They might yeah. not. Anyway, she wrote back to me. What uh, did she say? She said, stay in school. <laughs> Stay in school like you're doing great, stay in school, or stay in school like you're not ready for this? Well, I kind of said, um, I want to do what you do. Should I take a lot of film classes? Should I take a lot of journalism classes? And she said, no, take a lot of other classes. Take a lot of stuff so that you have something to write about Uh and some, you know, background knowledge to support what you want to write about. Uh, So that was cool. I think I still have that someplace. I don't know. I think my mother saved it, but I haven't (laughs) seen it recently. A lot of what I'm wanted to talk to you about was just like freelancing and you've been freelancing for 150 years really long time (laughs) and most people don't make it i mean most people don't make it doing that they just don't even for a short period of time because it's very isolating and you get uh, the rejection and everything else but also it's very hard to know how to start did you just sort of like say i'm gonna go for this or did you know how to approach it in those days there was this big fat book in the library called writer's market Hmm. and it was uh, sort of every publication out there with information about how to s- submit things to them and who the editor was. I mean, it went out of date instantly, um, but it was at least a beginning uh-huh. so that you could. And I think it probably had some advice about what a cre- query letter was and that you begin the query letter with your lead. You don't just sort of say, I'm a new re- graduate of the Northwestern School of Journalism. So I, I sort of used Writer's Market. And I found actual names of editors to write to, and I took my chances, I guess. But I did start at the top. I had the list. I started at the Mm -hmm. top and worked my way down. Mm -hmm. My break was I had an idea to write about this organization called the Gray Panthers, which were named that because they were very feisty and militant, but they were advocating for old people. And there was one woman in particular who was in charge of it, Maggie Kuhn, who was incredibly um, charismatic and just a wonderful old lady who I interviewed for, I think, for no particular reason. But then I wanted to do a profile of her and of the of the organization. So I wrote, to, of course, to the New York Times magazine and said, this is what I want to do. And I included clips of other stuff that I had written, mm-hmm. which is what writer's market told you to do. And in those days, they were little pieces of paper, you know, clips clipped together. Yeah, Xerox usually. And one of the clips was an article that I had written for The New Physician about um, geriatric medicine Mm -hmm. and about how doctors don't really know how to treat old people and they often miss um, the reversible causes of senility. 
they think people are senile and they re- they miss other things underlying it that they could have treated. Mm-hmm. So the editor, I didn't realize that editors actually read your clips. I thought they were just evidence that, you know, oh, I know how to do this and do it on time and write an English sentence. Um, so he read that article and he said, I don't want the Grey Panthers, but I'd like you to write this article for me about senility and misdiagnosing senility. Uh-huh. So that was totally my break. I mean, that was my first assignment for the Times Magazine and I was going to do it. And I was like, you know, 25. And in those days, 25 was young. I mean, now every 25-year-old is like writing for all sorts of amazing places. <laughs> um, but in those days, I, I really didn't expect to be writing for that yet. Yeah. <laughs> it was great because in those days I celebrated at the assignment. I celebrated when I finished. I celebrated when the, it was accepted. I celebrated when it was published. I mean, I had a lot of, you know, champagne brunches. Now I'm not quite as celebratory at every moment like that. <laughs> but what happened then is they did accept it and then promptly went on a six-month newspaper strike. Oh. So this was, um, I guess, 1979. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was sure that they would just never publish it you know, that they paid me for it and everything, but they would have such a backlog by the time they came back on that they would just not have room for it. But then they did come back and they did publish it and was published on Sunday. All of New York City read it on Sunday only. (laughs) And then on Monday, I got a call from a uh, publisher asking if I wanted to write a book about that topic. Mm -hmm. So that's why I can like really easily pinpoint this is my break. Uh And then you wrote that book. I did. That was called The Myth of Senility. Yes, not a very big book. Uh, it preceded too many other books about senility and Alzheimer's disease. It was so early that, first of all, the Today Show didn't want me on because that was going to be too depressing to talk about. Oh, wow. And second of yeah. all, when I told people what I was writing about and said Alzheimer's disease, they all thought I was saying old-timers disease because nobody had ever heard of it. Oh, wow. So it was really a little bit ahead of its time, and um, which is, you know, I mean, that's <laughs> sort of been the story of my life a little bit. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put uh, Evan and Robin on hold here for a second and tell you about a sponsor we've got this week, making today's show possible, making also uh, our website possible, Johnson & Johnson. Oh, hey. Well, first, a thanks to Johnson & Johnson, but uh, on behalf of Johnson & Johnson, we're here to thank some nurses. We are here to thank some nurses. Nurses not often thanked. Not enough. Yep. They are uh, taken for granted. There's 4 million nurses in America. I would say I can venture a guess they are not thanked 4 million times a day. Uh, if you want to learn more about uh, what it takes to be a nurse and get the thanks you deserve, uh, we have some. We have a long-form guide to nurses on our site. It's a bunch of the best articles about nurses ever. Go read them. It's, uh, link is in the show notes. Thanks very much to Johnson Johnson for supporting Longform. And let's get back to Evan and Robin. How do you find an idea that's like, close enough to the mainstream that you can pull it into one of these like mainstream publications, but also cutting edge enough that it's interesting to you. Yeah, that's really hard. That's been my continual concern Um, because I don't want to write the thing everybody else is writing. Like I was going to write a book 10 or 15 years ago on the science of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I had a contract for it and I had gotten some of my advance and everything. But then I heard that Martin Seligman, the famous psychologist from Penn, was going to write something on positive psychology. And I just didn't want to compete with it. I guess I didn't really want to write the book anyway because I kind of got out of it. Uh-huh. Gave back the money they had given me. I mean, it was oh, terrible. Wow. Um, <laughs> but I just I didn't really want to do something that I knew was going to be undermined by 
a bigger book. And actually, he did write it, and it was a pretty big book. So I probably was just as well to mm-hmm. pull out from it. But I mean, in a way, that's not really a journalist's psychology. You know, it's not like the best way to be if you're going to be out there in a very competitive field. Mm-hmm. It's not great to pull yourself out of the competition altogether. Well, we were talking about this recently around Zika and whether or not you would write about Zika. Right. That right. there's this, there's like this brief moment when Zika is just brand new and not a lot of people know about it. And then there suddenly becomes this moment where everyone's writing about it. Right. And if you're doing it as a book, then by the time the book comes out, the moment is a year old. They've either already cured it, you know, figured out how to get rid of it, or they've all been on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the case that with public health in particular, things are very, um, they're fads, you know, so, so things come and go and are on the top of everybody's um, discussion list, and then suddenly it's off. Uh-huh. Well, let's talk about this in context of this story that I'm completely fascinated with, which is the story that you did on AIDS in February of 1983, it had just been renamed AIDS and HIV did not, that concept of HIV, HIV didn't, didn't exist. exist. Right, right. So this is, I mean, this had to be one of the first, if not the first long. It would have been the very first if they had been faster publishing it because mm-hmm. they got it by the end of 1982. Uh, and then they yeah. kind of sat on it because that's, this was from the Times Magazine yeah. and that's kind of what the Times Magazine did then and does still. Uh <laughs> And I heard about it because at the time, my brother was a medical resident at Montefiore in the Bronx. And he actually said to me, he has never since sent me a a great story idea, but he said, there's something happening here. There are these people coming in with this weird disease that nobody can figure out. Uh So I started to look into it and um, found out what that it was this thing called, I mean, at the time it was called GRID, gay-related infectious disease Uh was part of it. And then... AIDS, but everybody spelled it out, A-I-D-S. And they also called it the gay plague, which was like pretty offensive. And so I, yeah, I did a lot of reporting. I was kind of the only person out there interested in writing about it. I don't know why the Times Magazine sat on it exactly, but then an article came out in Time or Newsweek, and then they rushed it. So it was kind of the first thing that the Times had done at length, but not the first magazine article at length. I mean, the article quotes Larry Kramer, like, before Larry Kramer. I mean, Larry Kramer was already, like, a known person in some ways, but, like, before he became, like, the right, spokesperson right. for, you know, taking ACT UP and all these things. Like, it's just like Larry Kramer, playwright, right. age 47, is just, yeah. like, a person. Actually, I'm in his play, The Normal Heart, which I've never really noticed, but um, he was very critical of the Times coverage Mm. in the play. Mm -hmm. And he said, until they finally got this lady from Baltimore to write about it. And I wasn't even from Baltimore. I was from Tacoma Park, Maryland, but that's okay. Uh, (laughs) um, But I think it was like a dismissive, you know, this is the best they could do with some some rube from the sticks. I thought it really held up in terms of that seemed like writing about it at that time, like you say, there were all these offensive ways of describing it. People didn't understand it. There were all these misconceptions. I mean, this is years before even like, you know, whatever Reagan would accept that AIDS was, Mm -hmm. you know, a thing in society and things like that, you know. So, but it it seemed to navigate those in a way that reading it today, I was amazed that that. There was one thing in there, though, I don't know if you noticed it, that I still regret. What's that? Which is... well, I was I was describing, I guess they called it the four H's. They were trying to figure out what the infectious agent must be. And they mm-hmm. were looking at the way in which it's transmitted. 
and realized that it was all blood-borne or that a lot of it was, so that the H's were Haitians because a lot of people who had been to Haiti at that time were infected, homosexuals, heroin abusers, and hemophiliacs. And, you know, they figured that if hemophiliacs were in there, it was because they were getting exposed to it from the blood treatment that they had to get to keep from, mm-hmm. to keep their blood clotting. Mm-hmm. And when I described those four groups, I called that group the innocent victims, mm. by which I really only meant they were getting infected through something that wasn't actually high-risk behavior. But it did make it read like I was saying that everybody else deserved it, which Mm -hmm. was what some of the trope Mm -hmm. out there Mm -hmm. was in those days. This was God's way of punishing homosexuals. So I didn't even see it. You know, I didn't see it at the time. I only saw it later when people pointed it out to me. So I was really careful about, I thought, about negotiating some of that territory, but that thing just didn't come out to prominence for me until after the fact. I mean, you've written about stories that do touch very controversial areas or that areas that can if things are not written in a precise way, like the genetics of race and medicine and women's health, like all of these areas where you can, they are minefields in some way. When you're writing, do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Well, genetics of race, I totally thought about that. And that was the whole, that was the whole point of that article. You know, this was um, something assigned to me. This was also the Times Magazine. I didn't think of it. They said, here's this stuff going on now uh, that NIH especially is looking into would you like to write about it? And even asking that question is controversial. Even trying to figure out whether there are genetic differences in what we call racial groups is very controversial. At one point, I was going to write it by mentioning the race of every single person I quoted, hmm. just as a thing, you know, just to make it clear that people have different positions. And I don't know, that, that was just, you know, draft 17. And <laughs> by draft 22, it was gone. <laughs> I wasn't sure where to put myself in there, you know, and I wasn't sure even whether to make it clear that I was white. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one where I went into the to the uh, Holocaust Museum exhibit about eugenics, right? I kind of wanted to bring it up to date in a way that didn't have to be, here's what I think about it, mm-hmm. you know, that was just another scene of us all thinking about it together and about how this kind of investigation, while it might be interesting and might have certain benefits, for example, if different races respond differently to to different drugs, which is one of the things that I was writing about, there could still be this terrible result. And we need to sort of keep that prominent in our minds. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship to scientists? You've inter- interviewed so many scientists. And there's another side of that trickiness, which is, are you writing something that you want the scientists to read and say, this is absolutely right. This is the way that I want this described, which is not sometimes going to be a way that's right. very readable for the public. So how do you how do you strike that balance and how do you view the scientists that you interview in terms of how they process your work? Well, it's very different depending on whether they've been exposed to reporters before. Uh-huh. I do want them to say this is exactly right. I want them to see the accuracy of what I say. Sometimes they... They ask for a lot of qualifiers. You know, if I if I read it back to them or if the fact checker reads it back to them and I I don't put in as many qualifiers as they want. And then when they kind of see it in the end, they realize that that's OK. Mm. I do worry about using the wrong metaphor, you know, because that's like a big thing for science writing is to try to make it clear in a language that people will understand how this stuff works. 
And sometimes I get the metaphor wrong. Like I was talking about at one point the connections of, between the brain cells because you start out with a lot of connections and then based on your experiences, the road, the pathways become more entrenched. And it has to do with pruning. But I said something about how it was like weeding or something. Anyway, I got, I got it wrong. I got it the exact opposite. You know, uh. it wasn't that you sort of forge an actual path. It was that you prune in some different way. Uh-huh. And luckily, some neuroscientists saw it and explained it to me. And pre-publication, uh-huh. yes, yes. Um, they don't get upset. You know, I worry that they're going to think, oh, she's really an idiot if she got this basic thing so backwards. They actually appreciate the chance to clarify things. But I worry a little bit about wanting my sources, even when they're not scientists, when they're just human beings, but wanting them to think it was a good article. You know, I mean, I don't want to please them necessarily if there's something negative I want to include, but I just want them to think it was fair. And so sometimes I do sort of censor myself and not put in something that could have made them look really bad. That's not great. A lot of these articles, especially the medical ones, you're encountering people at some of the worst moments of their life. Like I'm thinking of, I was reading the one that was sort of difficult to read about the children with progenia. Progeria. Progeria. But that's a situation where you're clearly, there's a first person part of it where you're, you know, playing with the kids or the kids have a a disease that basically like prematurely ages them in some right. way. Right. And it just occurred to me between that and some of the recent stories where you're dealing with people who either have just lost someone or are in stages of deciding what to do about the end of their lives. Like, how do you approach people to <laughs> capture those moments? The progeria one actually was one I was thinking of when I was saying that I want people to like it. I'm not sure that that mother liked it. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting article because there was this little boy who had progeria, Sam Burns. He was diagnosed when he was about two. And his mother, who was a scientist or or a doctor, devoted her life to finding the gene that was affecting her little boy and then found the gene. So it was really about her as much as about him. Mm -hmm. And it was and just about the disease, but also the extent to which it really is like rapid aging or whether they just sort of push that a little bit so that it makes it look like it's not just this rare disease that they're looking into, but it'll affect all of us. You know, I think that there's some politics behind that. She was pretty shut down in her conversation with me, very intellectual. And my editor kept pushing me to get more scenes of her crying or... (laughs) You know, just a little bit more emotion. Like, tell me what it was like when you first found out that you had this son who was going to die before he was 15. You know, like I have, I had to like ask a lot of those kind of questions. And I never heard anything back from her about what she thought about that article. So that troubled me, you know, because I, I thought that I was presenting her and her son in a very human way. But maybe she thought it was too much about her and too little about the disease. I don't know. Do you ha- have typically have ongoing relationships with Well, subjects? often they'll, they'll kind of at least write me an email and say thank you. Mm-hmm. And they did put it up on their website. You know, the Progeria fundraising organization did put it up. I mean, they knew that it was great publicity for them, but I never got anything personal from her. And that was a little bit of a, that was a little troubling. Hmm. And the one that I wrote about Brooke and Peggy, the guy who was paralyzed from the neck down, these are all from for the New York Times Magazine. Also, yeah. we're, we're I've had the best luck at writing long articles and 
that I could really get into. Anyway, Brooke and Peggy, he was paralyzed from the neck down. He wanted to stay alive, and she wasn't sure whether he really did, and his caregivers weren't sure whether maybe he was staying alive for her. And so it was about their their relationship and about decision-making and stuff. And I didn't hear from them for like a whole day after it appeared. And I thought, oh, maybe that one I really blew. But it was just that they were like fielding phone calls and stuff from all their friends, and they just didn't have a chance to sit down and tell me that they really liked it. Right. Even though I thought that in a way it made Peggy look a little bit bad, you know, because it made her look like she was pushing him to stay alive in a way that maybe he didn't really want to. And that maybe was in con- contrary to her philosophy, the, their philosophy prior to right. that moment. Right, right, right. She was on record as a philosopher. I mean, she was a, an assisted dying advocate who really wanted to do whatever the dying person said he wanted, but she was then living this life where it was really hard to understand what it was he was saying. I mean, he could speak fine and he could think fine, but he changed his mind a lot, as I imagine you would if you're living with that kind of condition. I got criticized for that one, too, by a disability rights group for making it sound like he was, it was such a difficult life, maybe not a life worth living, I didn't think I really had said that, but I did use words like lying there like a mannequin or, you know, some there were some word choices that I guess were quite offensive to some people. How do you how do you, <laughs> how do you uh, process these criticisms? I mean, this well, must obviously happen I remember all the time. Them, you right? bit, yeah, you, clearly they're, they're lost. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but they don't discourage you from taking on the next, like, really difficult topic? No, because now I'm writing about transgenderism. So, yeah. Uh, and that got talk about landmines there and language. No, they don't discourage me. I think they do sensitize me. You know, I mean, I, I can't undo calling Brooke a mannequin. I think he would have called himself that, too. Mm-hmm. I thought I was using it as a description, not as a judgment. The article I wrote after that was um, about a woman with Alzheimer's disease who wanted to end her life before she became demented. And I was trying to think of, so what do I call demented? Do I call it, you know, an empty husk of, a, you know, like I, I didn't know what to say about that situation either, a person who has no really functioning mind and trying to, you're a writer and try to come up with sort of clever, vivid ways to describe things, but sometimes you really can get into a lot of hot water when yeah. you're writing about something like this that affects people's lives. You know, So, the, yeah, the transgender thing, I'm treading very carefully. I have a lot of people. This is for National Geographic. I have a lot of people there on staff who are plugged into all sorts of communities and are, like, watching me to make sure that I don't misstep. Mm-hmm. And I will. I imagine that I will. There's something I'm going to write that somebody's going to get pissed off about. Mm-hmm. How deep do you try to go before you feel like you're ready to write? I'll just say one thing that happened to me when I was writing a lot about science is I felt like I had like a moment's grasp of the science. And then if you asked me about it, as soon as the thing was over or a week later, I couldn't remember any of it. Like I was never that great at science in school. You've written books about disease. You've written books about genetics. You know, so do you feel like you now have like at your fingertips like – the way chromosomes work and, you know, that. No, I have the metaphor for how chromosomes work. And uh, when we're doing crossword puzzles, I'm the one who, like, does the <laughs> medical and scientific answers. Uh, only biology, though. I don't know anything about physics and chemistry. And I also sort of know it long enough to write the article or the book. And then it does sort of disappear from my mind. If If I go back to the same subject, I probably learn it more quickly 
the next time because there is some sort of an imprint there that I can lay down the new information on, but it always feels like new information, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It'd be way better if I were able to really retain it and work with it. But you then, you, I mean, then you'd be a scientist. Then I'd be a scientist. And then also maybe I'd be not as good a science writer because when I, I do find that when I overprepare and have these kind of technical interviews with scientists where I'm almost trying to show off how hard I've worked and how many big words I know, um, they're not as good. You know, the interviews aren't as helpful for getting the kind of information I need for the article I am writing not for the technical thing I could be writing. Uh So, yeah, it's possible to kind of know too much if I'm writing for a general audience, I think. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about, well, we talked about how you got in the break and got into freelancing, but you also ended up writing a lot. Like, were you on staff at the Post, the Washington Post at one point, or you just wrote a lot for the Washington Post? I was on staff for a summer Uh um, while their reporter was on maternity leave. So I went in there and sort of like stretched my wardrobe to the limits <laughs> to look to wear something different for five days in a row. That was really hard for me because I'd been freelancing at that point for like seven years. And so then the Washington Post was fun. It was way more fun to have colleagues and stuff. And I was really struck by how um, how efficient I had learned to become in those seven years of freelancing because there's actually a lot of downtime in an office day. Mm-hmm. You know, people hang around and <laughs> chat. And <laughs> I was really impressed with that. They have meetings and they, they're not always sitting there writing stuff. You were you just know? spending your whole day actually working? Yes, I was. Well, I had two little kids and I was sending them out to babysitters, generally from nine to three from the time they were little so that I could get used to school hours. So I really felt like if they're going to be out and I'm not going to be with them, I have to be doing something. Mm-hmm. Plus, I had to make money. Mm-hmm. In those days, you could make money doing this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so I worked for the Post for um, those three months. And then when I came back, I I sort of had a understanding that I would write something for them almost every week. Uh-huh. So I did. So now we get to the fun uh, one of the fun parts of this interview, which is, since you've mentioned your daughters, we mm-hmm. might as well do a little disclosure portion here, which I didn't <laughs> feel is necessary to do earlier because just like a regular interview, but uh, I am actually married to one of your daughters. You are indeed, <laughs> to my younger daughter, Samantha. <laughs> you, as recently as uh, like 14 hours ago, were babysitting uh, our child. Your little daughter. your yes. granddaughter. Right. Okay, so we've got that disclosure out of the way. And... You were doing other types of writing, uh, including a column for USA Today that ran for a right, while. Right, right. And at some point, you were writing about family or your family or using your family, mining it for examples in some ways. In fact, I did inquire with your husband, who is also my <laughs> father-in-law, on this question. And he, he said he thought your one of your first freelance articles ever was about your wedding. It was. <laughs> It was for Modern Bride magazine. <laughs> that was back in the days when anything I wrote for a for a class, I would just sort of send out and try to get published. Yeah, and they published it. Well, yes, it was on how to write your own wedding ceremony. Uh, I'm surprised we didn't show it to you when you were dealing with yours. I don't think I've seen that article. No. <laughs> yeah, you were ahead of the curve on that. Totally now ahead of the curve. That. Yes, right. So this is obviously like a topic that comes up sometimes in uh, in the family articles that you wrote at different times that were about the family. Uh, about your daughters. Was there a sort of decision to do that? Do you remember a moment where you were sort of like, I'm writing about these issues and I'm going to use 
my family as examples. Well, I did that some for the Post, for the Washington Post. They had a style section that had essays, and I did that a couple of times, which might have been what brought me to the attention of USA Today. I'm not sure. Hmm. But this was back in the 90s when I guess they USA Today felt like they didn't have a readership of women like me, like women who were in their 30s, 40s, and were raising families. And so the assignment was once a month, write a column for us that's about anything that interests you. And if you do that, we figure that it'll interest people just like you. So anyway, I did start writing about my kids then because I was told to. I actually love writing personal essays. I just find them really fun. But I was aware that there were, you know, human beings at the other end of it. Sometimes I have that feeling that this has come up with a lot of writers, that if you're in the writer's family, David Sedaris talks about this. Everything is available to be written about. Yeah. You know, in fact, one of his sisters got mad that he wrote about something that had happened to her, and he's and his response was, "Well, you weren't going to do anything with it." You know, like everything has to <laughs> everything's be done material. With. Right. Right. Now I know that Sam, your wife, likes having been written about. I mean, she's actually said to me that it's almost like looking at an old photo album, uh-huh. you know, because she can sort of see some of the essays I wrote about her uh, playing soccer and then playing basketball and then, you know, visiting her her friend's father and getting wolf whistled at and, you know, a lot of things that happened to her as she was growing up. And she kind of likes that ability to remember her life that way. My older daughter, Jess, at one point, and I forget when it was exactly, said, you are not allowed to ever write about me ever again, ever. Mm -hmm. So I basically don't, which is fair. You know, I mean, it is their lives, it turns out. Well, it's complicated Mm -hmm. because in some ways when they're little, you're controlling the narrative of how they're described. Like they can't, they have no agency in how that's described, but it's also your narrative. Right. And so for me to write about my feelings about being their mother, I guess, is fair game, but it generally butts up against their stories. There is a kind of famous one about VBS, visible bra straps. Yes. Oh, is it famous? I don't know. I had heard about it previously, and then I found it. And one of the fascinating things about it is that it ends with you having this concern about how they're dressing, but you're actually moving on to the next worry, which is... Jess is getting, maybe thinking about getting a tattoo. <laughs> maybe, huh? <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago when tattoos were like a thing a that thing, yeah. you would be afraid of somehow. And also she has really cool tattoos. Right. That I think universally people would be like, those are really cool tattoos. <laughs> um, but then later you went on to write with uh, your daughter. Yes, also I my did. wife. Yes. What went into deciding to write a book with Sam. I had written an article for the Times Magazine that they called, What Is It About 20-somethings? And so a lot of young people sort of saw that headline, thought the Times was really criticizing young people, and, you know, just another one of those articles. And Because it actually was not criticizing millennials at all. It was focused exactly on one question, which is a psychologist had was trying to make it sound like this was a distinct developmental phase, being an emerging adult between the ages of about 18 and 29. And so the article was about, is that true? Mm-hmm. Which is where the neurological pruning comes in and stuff. The um, brain isn't fully developed until about 25. Because it was a huge hit. I mean, It was a big hit, people, yeah. Like millennials may have written in and said they didn't like it, but also a lot of people read it. 
or shared it at least. Sure. I don't know how many people actually read the words. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but a lot of people shared it and a lot of people had hot takes on it. A lot of people. So, yeah. So, of course, a publisher wanted to get in on it. And at that point, I had written a whole bunch of books and they'd been really fun to write, but kind of disappointing results. You know, they didn't like sales sell. Results. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'd always said, I only want to write another book if I really just love the process of writing it and really don't give a shit about who buys it or what happens after that. And so I knew that the only way I could do that was to write it with, I thought, both my daughters. But, of course, only one of them really wanted to. <laughs> um, and actually, I don't even know if Sam really wanted to or was just being nice to me because uh, she is, as you know, very nice. But uh, I said to the publisher, I will do that, but I'll, I would like to do it with my daughter. And she is a 20-something, so that would give me more credibility. And, you know, I would do the sort of heavy lifting sciencey stuff and she'll put in her youthful voice and give us a little bit more of a um, personal angle to it. Mm -hmm. So we got that contract and we wrote that book together and it was really fun for me. <laughs> I, I don't know if it was really fun for Sam. And so I did achieve that, that state of really only caring about getting to write that book. And the fact that almost nobody bought it really didn't bother me because I had had this great time writing a book with her. Huh. And there, there's nothing else we could have done differently either. I mean, it got a really great review in The New Yorker, yeah. the first book of mine that ever was reviewed in The New Yorker. And so I don't know why it didn't take off. I really don't. That's one of the things that interests me about be freelancing for this long. And you've written nine or ten books, depending nine. on how you count it. Yeah. It seems to me one of the hardest things about being a freelance writer is like avoiding the accrual of slight and rejection and just f embitterment that can come from <laughs> because if you do it for even just a year or a couple of years that stuff just just everywhere like you have an idea and then someone else writes it or you write something and then someone else writes something that is way more popular than the thing you wrote for reasons that you can't quite determine right where did you get the fortitude <laughs> to do this i don't know that i have it i mean i think i'm just sort of plugging along you know i mean i I have my moments of thinking, well, why am why is this still so hard? You know, why do I still have to prove myself after all this time? Uh, if I were in a different field or if I were like even on a staff, I'd have a title that gave me more respect. Mm -hmm. And I still have to wait just as long as any other writer to get any kind of response to a to a pitch. I still have to pitch. You know, nothing is like automatic even after all these years of working at this. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that bugs me a great deal. And I just stick with it because I do like the times when I get to do this stuff, you know, and I have to remind myself that like, they're, they're not that many, <laughs> you know, there's, but a day when I write really well, and like have just done something, mostly in the rewriting that I really like, is so gratifying that I sort of put up with the rest of the shit just for that day. Also, because I don't know that I could that I have any other skills, so I'm just sort of stuck with that one. What are the ways in which you feel like the the industry has changed in terms of how you interface with it? Do you feel like you're doing basically the same thing that you've always been doing, or that you have had to change what you were doing either in style, the style of the stories, mm -hmm. to accommodate some new editorial approach that people have, or in the business of it? Yeah, I had reached a point about 
five or ten years ago where I thought what I really want to do is only focus on these long articles for print publications. And I was able to do that. Like I was writing one long article every six months for the Times Magazine, mm -hmm. generally a cover story. And that was a little stretch of very gratifying stuff. And then partly because the editors changed, but partly also because I guess the industry changed a little bit more, it became harder to get those long print assignments. And so I had to make a decision kind of, okay, so do I do like blog posts for a couple hundred dollars? Do I work hard to try to do stuff on the web for like almost nothing? Or do I, you know, stick to my principles and only do something that'll pay me $2 a word, which sounds like so stratospheric now, but was actually what I was making back in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, what everybody was making. It wasn't that I was anything special. So I've had to sort of change what I'm willing to put up with. And I haven't gotten flexible enough yet to put up with the shit. I mean, I think that I am on the verge of doing that now. Like when I'm done with this next National Geographic article, which does pay well, I'll probably have to think about, okay, maybe I'll just like be more of a hack or, you know, more of a person who just churns stuff out and doesn't care if she gets paid for it or not or gets paid well for it or not. But I still – that's still working against my instincts. What would be the advantage in, in taking that approach? I would get those fun days. You know, I would get those days where I was writing something. I mean, I've, I've written some blog posts for like NPR has this really nice blog called Shots, a health blog. And I've written sometimes for them and in, it takes two days. And those are two really fun days. So if I could sort of make myself think, okay, that's worth the $600 they paid me. You know, instead of if I had written exactly that length of something, it should really be more like six thousand dollars. You know, I mean, they're not that long, but you know what I mean. I mean, the the um, the per word rate is so terrible for these things that if I focus on that, I'll never do anything. But if I don't focus on that, I get to do those things that mm -hmm. are kind of fun. But I have to really think of it almost like a volunteer thing. I think, like you're like it's community service, <laughs> right? Kind right, of. it's community service. <laughs> Journalism is a community service model is, a, is one possible model for the future of journalism. Um, do you feel like people's want of or reaction to science journalism has changed over the years? Well, I was very worried for a while when science bloggers became so big because there were all these scientists who were putting their stuff directly out there without the middleman who was, you know, somebody like me who would translate what they were doing. Uh, but the science bloggers, I think, didn't really take over everything. I, I think there are a lot more science journalists out there. Uh, and we're all trying to figure out exactly what our role is. Are we cheerleaders for science or explainers for science or investigators of science? And there's like different ways to do that job. I think there's more outlets and more people. I also feel like I don't have that right voice for whatever it is that they're all doing, whatever their youthy voice is. Like an online voice? Yeah, or a kind of funny voice or some a voice that'll sometimes put in a funny thing. <laughs> you know, if I try to be funny, it's like terrible. So I don't try. But if I read my stuff side by side with something that a younger person writes, there is something about it that just sounds much more like I'm who I am, and I'm older. So I feel like that is going to limit my options more than anything else in the next 10 years. Do you think there's ageism in assigning the stories? Yeah, probably. 
but I think it's because everybody sort of wants to find the next new thing. I mean, maybe I benefited from ageism when I was starting out. Yeah, it does seem like a an industry in which people are. I mean, I'm I'm 41. I'm like I'm too. Uh, I don't have a youthful voice either. Like, there are people who are in their 20s who are yeah. communicating in ways that, like, I if I try to capture them, I'll sound ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it moves really f- fast in some ways. Does, but on yeah. the other hand, every time you publish a story in the New York Times Magazine, I see it at the top of the most emailed list. So it can't be that, that the voice that you're writing in is not a voice that people want to read. Right, but I think it must be a voice that maybe editors don't want to a sign. I don't know. Because you're right. Like many of the articles that I've written have been like wildly sent around, either emailed or, you know, shared on social media. And there was one metric that they came up with recently, like how much time people spend Mm -hmm. on a Times article. And my last one was way up there. But nobody cares. You know, like it's not like the editor then says, oh, here's one of our very popular writers. Let's think of something else for Robin to do. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And I don't know why that is. And maybe if I were 20 years younger, they would have a different attitude towards, look what just happened and how many people are reading this. Let's figure out another way to have her do it. That's troubling. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's troubling for Especially all of when us you have the one skill. freelancers. <laughs> Well, we're all aging. I mean, that's the other part of it is that they, you know, nobody sort of projects his own future onto the people that he's ignoring. And I mean, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it that it's clearly ageism so much as lack of any kind of respect for track record, at least in my case. I mean, I know that there are a lot of older, even older than me, journalists out there who are given all sorts of mouthpieces and You've had some on your podcast, and it's great for them. So I don't know if it's something about, who knows, maybe it's sexism, too, because the ones I'm thinking of are mostly male. It seems like it could be a combination yeah. of those two factors. Yeah, uh, But maybe it's just that, um, I don't know, that I'm in a period where my favorite outlet isn't really coming to me mm-hmm. the way they used to. I mean, there was a time when they would sort of come to me with an, an article idea, and that's not happening. Why are you writing so much about death right now? <laughs> you want to psychoanalyze this? <laughs> I, 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 I want to know. Yeah. You've, you had those two Times Magazine pieces in particular, and then and then National Geographic story that was also about death and near death. Right. Well, clearly you were writing about it at the very beginning, too. Right, right. So I, I don't have to feel like it's only because I'm so much closer to it. <laughs> but I was you, always interested. But did you have, do you have a fascination or... And or fear of death? That yeah, drives a fear you? of death. And I think that probably I think if I can just sort of intellectualize the whole damn thing, then it won't be so scary. But that's not really the case. I also think, well, we're all going to die. It's very universal. I think that the um, debate over assisted dying is like a really important issue facing my generation and then your generation. You know, it's like it's like the big thing that's waiting for us right now is how we die and if we get a chance to die at the rate, at the pace we want to, at the time we want to. So I've been interested in figuring out a way to write about that. I don't know why. I I think because it's a big, big topic. You know, it's like the topic in a way. Uh, and I just want to figure out a way to say something creative and surprising and helpful about it. So we talked about how you've written about your family, but as it also turns out, 
both of your daughters are in journalism, one a very accomplished writer, the other one a very accomplished editor. Is that something you wanted? <laughs> I'm actually a little surprised because, you know, our dinner table conversations were always about me complaining. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but actually, I I love that they're both journalists. I love that Sam married a journalist. I love that my nephew also is a journalist. He's a writer for The New Yorker. I love having this little family industry. But it all came from you because it's not like uh, it's not like you're like a family of like people who started a magazine. You know, like, yeah. have some history in like the great like. I don't know how it happened. Um, maybe because they too. This is their skill. Both my girls are so good at that. And Sam is an editor, but she's also a really great writer. And Jess is an amazing writer, way better than I'll ever be. I don't know. Are there genes that pass that on? Or is it really the dinner table conversation? I mean, we I've always been very open about talking about anything I've been writing. They um, they have been editing my stuff from the time they were you know in high school or earlier. When I was at the Washington Post, I brought Jess in when she was seven, and she actually found a couple of, she did some proofreading, found some typos. So, <laughs> um, wow, seven-year-old copy editing the Washington Post. Yeah, she's pretty good. I mean, a lot of families go into sort of the family business because it's what they see as possible out there. And I made this look possible. I'm surprised that I made it look appealing. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree. I've read so many of, so much of your work over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> And I think you make it very appealing. Well, thank you. I also think if there's one person to explore this nature versus nurture question of why they got into journalism, it's Robin Ranshennig. <laughs> Maybe that's my next topic. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It was fun. Thank you for having me, Evan. <laughs> thank you for letting me into your family. Oh, my God. That's, that's been the best thing that's happened to us in a long time. <laughs> and I will uh, end this podcast in a way I never have ended our podcast before and say, I love you. Oh, I love you, too. All right. <laughs> That's it for this week's long-form podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks especially to Robin for agreeing to come in for this special uh, family sort of edition of the Longform Podcast. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform, and to Jenna Weiss-Berman, our editor and our intern, Courtney Harrell. We appreciate our sponsors, Johnson & Johnson, Audible, and as always, MailChimp. And we will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs>